to you all. It's good to have our visitors with us and our uh, long-term old friends, some from out of town. It's a blessing to be gathered with you on the Lord's Day. And we do extend to all of you a very warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful that you've joined us today. And as we continue in our worship, I invite you to turn in your, your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we pick up in our exposition of this Gospel. We have for the last several months been making our way verse by verse and section by section through John's Gospel. And we come this morning to chapter 3, having finished up verse 16 over the last couple Sundays. We now want to consider verses 17 through 21. John chapter 3, 17 through 21. Let us read and hear God's Word together. We'll begin in verse 16 and read through verse 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He who believes in Him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let us unite our hearts one final time as we come to the preaching of his word, and let us ask for God's help and for the Spirit's illumination upon his word. Let us pray together. Our gracious God and Father, we pray as we've just sung that You would be our help as we come to Your Word. Lord, we just sung that by nature we are in darkness, that all of our thinking is shrouded in darkness until Your Spirit comes and breaks our night. And so, Father, we pray that You would send Your Spirit amongst us through the proclamation of Your Word that He would illuminate to our hearts and minds the Word that He inspired so many years before us. Father, we are helpless apart from Your help. We pray that You would glorify Yourself, glorify Your name in building up Your church. Help Your people to be strengthened in Your Word. We pray that we would be brought low and humbled as we consider our very own state by nature before we came to know Christ. I pray that we would reflect on the darkness of our situation and circumstance before Your grace sought us out and that we would give You genuine thanksgiving from our hearts regarding the great work that You have worked in us. Father, we at one time loved darkness rather than light as well. 
No doubt all of us can reflect on those days when we heard the good tidings of Christ in the Gospel and our hearts were disinterested because we loved sin. We loved living in the cover of darkness, in the cloak of darkness. We loved defending and excusing our sin until You, Father, in Your grace, by the power of Your Spirit causing us to be born again, made us alive when we were dead. You raised us to newness of life, giving us new hearts that now willingly came to the light, that rejoiced in the light, and no longer hid from the light so that our deeds might be clearly seen, that they are done through and in our God. We pray, Father, that we would rejoice this morning in Your grace to us. We pray also, Father, for any who are in our midst who are strangers to Christ and who do not know Christ and who are still in darkness. We pray that today would be the day in which You draw them sovereignly into the light of the Gospel. Cause them not only to hear again the truth of Christ, but by Your Spirit and in power, cause them to come most willingly to the Savior. To flee from the darkness of sin and the wrath that is coming and the condemnation that even now is upon them. And that they would flee to Christ for safety. Do this for Your name's sake, we pray. For Your glory, that we might rejoice in Your works. We ask that You'd be our help this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's begin our look at this passage this morning in the typical way that we have been through the Gospel of John. Usually, we begin with exposition. What does this passage teach us and how does it instruct us? What does it mean? Secondly, we move into doctrine, deduced, and thirdly, application. This morning, for the sake of trying to be a bit briefer, for the uh, sake of the Lord's table, I'm going to combine again the doctrine and application So we will have two main sections to this morning's sermon. But let's begin with the exposition and considering this passage before us. And it's at this point I especially would encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word, to please have it open to John chapter 3 so that you can see for yourself the intention that God the Holy Spirit has given us, the meaning that He has given us in this text. Beginning in verse 17, It says, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn or judge the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Okay, now let's just start our exposition with what this doesn't mean. Sometimes you have to do that. The way most people spin verse 17 that God did not send His Son into this world to judge the world or condemn the world, they spin it usually the same way they spin Jesus' words, judge not lest you be judged. Right, Just kind of convenient cherry-picking of biblical phrases to try to paint Jesus as this non-judgmental person who just accepts you and I just the way we are. Right? And you've no doubt probably experienced that. Talking to someone and you're talking to them about sin and righteousness and the need of repentance and the judgment of God. And they're often very quick to teach you, well, don't you know that Jesus came into the world not to judge the world? And so, Christian, why are you not being like Jesus in judging me? As though Jesus came to just kind of be this you-do-you type of person 
with no opinion on what, what is right and what is wrong or what is true and what is false. You really have to ignore the whole rest of the Bible if you really walk away from the Bible thinking that that's who Jesus is. Jesus did make judgments. He made plenty of judgments. In fact, He commands us to judge according to righteous judgment. In fact, He's the one who pronounces judgment on sinners saying, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. That's not what verse 17 means. Verse 17, remember, comes in the context of God's love towards the world that we spent two weeks on in John 3.16. And we saw it's not a love that comes to accept the world the way that they are. It is a love that comes into the world that redeems the world and transforms the sinner and brings sinners out of the kingdom of darkness and brings them into the kingdom of His Son. And what John is emphasizing here is that that could have been very different. Jesus could have justly come into this world, a world bearing the sword of God's judgment to destroy His enemies and to bring this world to a close and to consign sinners to their eternal misery. But John is saying that's not the reason He first came. That will be the reason of His second coming. He will come in judgment. But this first sending, John says, was so that the world through Him might be saved. God giving sinners a most undeserved opportunity to be reconciled to the God from whom they have estranged themselves. Which is quite amazing, isn't it? Because by all accounts, the last thing this world deserved from God was saving. And if we really knew ourselves, and if we really understood the sinfulness of sin, and how horrendous sin is to God, it would surprise us that this text doesn't say God did send His Son in order to judge the world. That's precisely what He did in the flood, in the times of Noah. It would not have been unjust to, for God to have done it again. But God of His own grace and His good pleasure in the fullness of time when the sins of mankind were ripe for judgment rather than sending His Son to judge, He instead sends forth His Son to redeem those who are fast bound in sin and nature's night. Verse 18, He who believes in Him is not condemned. Now think about that, especially for those who want to say that verse 17 means that Jesus doesn't judge, doesn't bring condemnation. That assumes that there's a condemnation coming, doesn't it? Jesus will bring judgment upon all sinners who do not repent. But the announcement of the Gospel to us now, and please hear me, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, the announcement of the Gospel to us in this season of amnesty and peace is this that though I be a great sinner and have sinned high-handedly against my God, and though I do not have one defense to give in order to clear my guilty name, the Gospel says, yet if I believe in God's Son, receiving by faith from Him the fullness of His grace and His righteousness, God will consider justice for my case to be satisfied. 
And God the Father being both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus will justly throw out my charges and my condemnation because God's Son came to bear my condemnation and to clear my charges by the sacrifice of Himself. That is the simple, glorious Gospel promise to all who believe. And the confidence that every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ has and may have. But then John gives the other side. Middle of verse 18, he says, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbeliever, if you're here and you're not a Christian, John is speaking to you here. And he doesn't mince words. He says, you stand condemned already. You need to understand about something about the way God views you. If you are outside of Christ, it is not like God is waiting to see how the rest of your life will go to determine whether you will be worthy of judgment or condemnation. There is already more than enough evidence and testimony mounted up against your case to convict you and condemn you. Today, you could be in hell justly. And the only reason you are not in hell this morning is because of the mercy of God to you. You just think of God's mercy that we are worthy of condemnation already. And He sends His Son. Three things that that word already means. First of all, it speaks to how certain your condemnation is if you remain outside of Christ. If you die in your sins and outside of Christ, you are so sure to be condemned on the last day. It is as though that last day of judgment has already happened. Secondly, that word already speaks to your present condemnation. Not only is your condemnation in the future sure if you remain outside of Christ, but you are right now a child of wrath. Ephesians 2, God's displeasure is upon you. Everyone who is outside of Christ, God is not for you. It does not matter how many kind providences He has shown you, and I'm not denying He has. But anyone outside of Christ, God is not for you. He is against you. And His mercies to you are Him telling you you need to repent before it is too late. But thirdly, notice it's a condemnation that is more severe because it is rooted in your rejection of God's Son. John says at the end of verse 18, because He has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Not only do you lie open right now to the judgment of God for all your other former sins, but unbelief in Christ is the chief of sins because it is a sin against the remedy. It's a sin against the medicine. And it is the great stiff arm towards God because you are stiff arming the greatest gift God could ever give to a sinful humanity. And your rejection of Christ will be that great sin that haunts you in eternity because it is the great damning sin which leaves you under the guilt of all your other sins. Then in verse 19, John gives the reason, 
the reason for this unbelief. In verse 19, he says, And this is the condemnation or the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. That is, in my opinion, one of the most significant verses in the Gospel of John. Explaining to us the natural disposition of sinful man and the reason that underlies his unbelief. Let's just take it a piece at a time. First of all, John says light has come into the world. Light can have different meanings in the Scripture. Here, when John speaks of light, he means the light of knowledge, the light of truth. God has borne witness from heaven of His truth. And that witness reaches its apex in the manifestation of His Son, who is light, coming into the world. God has given us light. If, if God had not given light, and if men and women had no knowledge of the truth, and if the work of the law were not written on our hearts, and if God had just left us void of any knowledge of God and our duty toward Him, then we wouldn't be accountable. Because there wouldn't be any light to make us accountable. But that is not what the Scriptures say. The Scriptures tell us from cover to cover, God has given us light. First of all, He has given light to every single human being in general revelation. Someone once asked R.C. Sproul, what happens to the innocent person who dies who never heard of Jesus? And he quipped sarcastically trying to point out uh, the, how, how badly framed that question was. And he said, the innocent person who never hears of Jesus goes immediately into heaven. Because he was trying to point out what was flawed in their question. Because the question that that question begs is this. Is there any such thing as innocent people? And the answer to that question biblically is a resounding no. Everyone has light. Romans 1, 18-20. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now where did they learn that truth from? Paul goes on, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest to them, for God has shown it to them. For since the beginning of creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, seen being understood by the things that have been made, even His eternal power and Godhead so that we are without excuse. But even greater light than the light of general revelation is the light of special revelation. And that's what John, I think, mostly is referring to here. The light of Christ incarnate has come into the world. God in the flesh has come into His creation. Right? You remember chapter 1, in the opening verses, John said of Christ, He is the light that enlightens every man. And though the world was made through Him, John told us the world did not receive Him. Now that's what chapter 1 simply stated. And now chapter 3 here is giving us the reason. 
Why did the world not receive him? I don't know if you ever ask yourself this question. Why is it that men and women don't wake up every morning and the moment they realize they have breath in their lungs for another day, and the moment they look out the window and they see the beauty and the intricacy of a world they know that they did not make, why do they not immediately and spontaneously burst, burst forth in praises to the true and living God? And why do they instead believe theories that say things like we came from fish, that came from a big bang, that apparently came from nothing? Does that sound to you like a person who is honestly and unbiasedly following the evidence? Why isn't it that every man and woman, the moment that they hear the good news of Christ Jesus crucified and risen for us, why is it that they don't just fall down on their knees in worship? And why instead do they get, do they get angry and offended? John tells us here, the reason, and listen very carefully, this is why I say it's one of the most important verses in John, the reason is not ignorance. It is not not knowing. It's because, John says, they loved darkness rather than light. It's like, I'll give, I'll give you an analogy. Uh, if you've ever read books or watched documentaries on criminal cases, serial killers and things like that, in which there are piles and piles and piles of irrefutable testimony proving beyond the shadow of a doubt the guilt of a person. I mean, it is so clear that everyone can see it. But what's very fascinating is that often in those cases, you'll often have a close family member, often it's a spouse, who just refuses to believe that it could be true. It doesn't matter how airtight the proof is, doesn't matter how conclusive it is, they simply will not accept that it is true. Why? Because they don't want it to be true. They would rather believe a lie than submit to the truth. That is why men do not come to the light. It's because they don't like the light and they love actively love darkness. And Christian... This is why evangelism is not merely an issue of argumentation, right? And if I can just get all my ducks in a row, say things right, out pops a Christian. That, that's not the, the main issue. As though all they need is for the evidence to be explained to them. That's not true because guess what? God has already explained the evidence to them and they've already rejected it. They suppress it. And you can argue, unless God's Spirit is at work, you can argue till you're blue in the face and even prove to the unbeliever that his worldview doesn't have a leg to stand on, and yet they will still find a reason to reject the truth. Why? Because they love darkness and hate light. Sinners are like cockroaches who live in... I don't mean that to be condescending. I mean that in the sense of what cockroaches do. Cockroaches love the cloak of darkness. And the moment you come into a dark room and you flip on the light switch, the cockroaches don't all of a sudden say, oh, there's the light. 
We've been looking for that. What do they do? They scatter to hide themselves in some form of darkness. Because sinners are not neutral. They are actively trying to avoid the light. That's, I mean, if you need an explanation of Jesus' words to Nicodemus, this is why. This is why He said to him, you must be born again. Because it takes the work of the Spirit of God renewing the mind and renewing the heart to cause a sinner to prefer light instead of preferring the darkness. John says, verse 19 and 20, they love darkness and not the light because their deeds are evil. And then verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Notice the order. Notice it says, he who practices evil hates the light and does not come to the light. We often emphasize the other way around. We often emphasize that bad doctrine and bad belief will lead to immoral living. Right? And that's true. When you believe evil things, you will live in an evil way. But John is saying the opposite is also true. Immoral living will lead to bad belief in order to defend our immoral living. Right? It's a coping mechanism that sinners use. He whose deeds are evil will actively pursue beliefs that affirm his evil lifestyle in order to keep his evil deeds from being exposed. That's what sinners are always doing. We're looking for more darkness that makes our darkness not look like darkness. And this is where sin is doubly deceptive. Not only is sin deceptive in the sense that it promises us joy and life and then it really delivers death. But this is a sense in which sin is doubly deceptive in that after it brings death and guilt and shame, it convinces us that the best thing to do is to stay in the darkness and ignore the light because we think that that will solve the problem. Right? Like Adam and Eve, our first parents, what is the first thing they did after they sinned? Let's hide. Let's hide from God. It's, it's the whole um, thought process of my house is a mess and instead of addressing the problem, I'm just going to board up all the windows so that no light comes in so that I don't have to see that my house is a mess. And so what the sinner does is he becomes willfully ignorant of the light. And that word willfully is very important. How does the sinner become willfully ignorant to the light? To the light? I'll give you a few things that there's, there's hundreds more we could mention. They become willfully ignorant to the light, first of all, by coming up with ideologies that make their sin seem less irrational and less sinful. Next, they surround themselves with people who celebrate their sins in order to make them feel like the darkness is right. Thirdly, they, en- they avoid entertaining any thoughts of the true God. Fourthly, they convince themselves that Christians are hateful and judgmental and they get angry with Christians and yell at Christians and talk over Christians so that they don't have to hear what they have to say. And why do they do all these things? lest their evil deeds be exposed. 
That's what willful ignorance does. And here's the thing. Let me speak to you if you're here and you're an unbeliever. Here's the thing. You, you can do that this whole life. You can try. You're not going to keep the light out completely. You can try to live in a self-made reality trying to deny the undeniable. But you need to understand when you pass into the next world and in the blinking of an eye you see Christ on His throne, there will be no more escaping the light. Your mouth will at that moment be stopped. No more ideologies to hide behind. No more wisdom of men. No more friends to celebrate your sin and make you feel like you're on the right side. And the Christians who tried to love you and whom you hated in return will be on the other side surrounding the Lamb of God. And the light, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you will be confronted with, that light which offered you mercy in this life will be the light who pronounces on you an eternal sentence of darkness. And you will be forced to admit this is the condemnation. That light came into the world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And that eternal sentence of darkness will not be like the darkness that you seek now. Oftentimes sinners think that, that if I go to hell, it's just going to be a continuation of all the things I love. All the sin that I love. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make the Gospel less urgent if hell was just a long party for you to continue indulging in the very things you do now? In hell, all of the joy of sin is taken away. And it will be the darkness of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lying for an eternity under the wrath of God whose love in the Gospel you spurned because you refused to step out of the darkness and come to the light. Lastly, verse 21. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Now, I'm, I'm going to open this up in our next section, so I'm going to be brief here. But this is a contrast. Granted, most of these verses are focused on the darkness of men, but John closes with a description of the believer. And you notice how different it is. Because of the Spirit's regenerating work in the believer's life, he relates very differently to the light. The unbeliever lives in the darkness and disingenuously tries to pretend that the light is not there, but the believer comes to the light and lives in the light so that his life can be clearly seen and scrutinized by the light. Even though the Christian... Uh, even though the Christian knows he has remaining pockets of darkness within him, he does not seek to defend it and hide it, but he welcomes the light to shine upon him because the light clearly demonstrates and confirms that his life is one lived out of communion with God. And that what he does is done in sincerity by faith in God. Two very different and opposite attitudes to the light. And we'll open that up in our in our closing section. Let's, let's move now. That's the exposition of the text. Let's move into our doctrine and application. As I mentioned at the beginning, I've tried to combine these 
for the sake of time, but honestly, I still didn't accomplish that very well, but it's shorter than I have been, okay? So I'm making progress. Let's turn our attention to doctrine and application. Doctrine is doctrines that are deduced from the passage, and application is how we should respond to those doctrines. I have two things for you. Number one is this. All men by nature are born lovers of darkness. All men and women and children are born by nature lovers of darkness. Okay, and there couldn't be a text that more clearly proves that point. Brothers and sisters, we, I am convinced we need to recover for the sake of God's glory and redemption for the sake of faithful evangelism, and for the sake of a whole host of other reasons, we need to recover the biblical doctrine of man's natural enmity towards God. Okay, men are not neutral towards the things of God. They don't have a Jesus-shaped hole in their heart that's just waiting for Jesus to come in. They are, and Christian, we were, Romans chapter 3, unrighteous, having no fear of God before their eyes, and no one seeks after God. That is what the Bible unambiguously teaches, and we could look at hundreds of texts this morning to prove it. And yet, most people today, including many professing Christians, act as though that is just not true. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the last, you know, some call him the last of the Puritans, 1700s, he said in his day that total depravity is one of those doctrines that is proven to be universally true by everyone's experience, and yet it's a doctrine that is almost universally denied. One, I mean, imagine what he would say in our day. One of the reasons that, the go, that gospel preaching is so anemic in our day is because our doctrine of man is so anemic. Pastors preach to unbelievers like they're preaching to God's buddies. As though if God offers a, a tasty enough cup of coffee and a good concert, that maybe they'll have a change of heart. Whereas Jesus described it for His church in Matthew 16 as storming the gates of hell. Psychology and therapy and self-help have eclipsed God's Word and what it says about our real problem. And as a result, Jesus is preached merely as a therapist and a life coach rather than as a powerful Savior who alone can deliver us from our own hatred of God and the dominion of sin. And this has contributed to thousands. That's an understatement. Probably millions of false conversions and the nominalism that plagues us in the church is because the church has bought the Pelagian idea that man is basically good or at least neutral and that becoming a Christian is nothing more than signing a card or walking an aisle rather than a supernatural work of God changing the sinner from a lover of darkness into a child of light. Case in point, the seeker-sensitive movement. By the way, a movement with that name should never have gotten off the ground if anyone had a shred of understanding of a biblical doctrine of man. 
What exactly are they seeking that we are supposed to be sensitive to? Because Paul literally says, and couldn't be clearer, no one seeks after God. It's true, sinners seek many things, but God is not one of them. Not the true God. And just because you can win someone with a gimmick or a good cup of coffee or a good concert or a good social group or whatever it means uh, it might be, that doesn't mean that they've been delivered from their love of sin through the saving gospel. And to change and focus the entire purpose of the gathering of the church in order to attract people who the Bible tells us don't even want God is insanity. And we could have a a whole sermon on those things. Christian, let, let me encourage you in the task that Christ has given to you. Okay? This is vital for us to understand because we need to understand not only who we were, but also what are we dealing with? Who are we dealing with? Christian, you have never in your whole life talked to a person who is neutral towards God. And I, I know you may have talked to someone who thinks they're neutral towards God. But you've got to understand, not believing in Jesus is not neutrality. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. And Christian, you need to understand, Christ has armed you with his gospel to go not into neutral or friendly territory, but into hostile territory. Just like he came into a hostile world that crucified him. And we need to be prepared for that. Or or else we're setting ourselves up for disillusionment. We need to realize that beforehand and try to expose and shine the light on the world's evil deeds. Now, there are certainly different levels and different ways in which one's love of darkness will manifest itself. So please don't hear me saying that everyone is bad in the same way or that everyone is as bad as he or she could possibly be. That's not what I'm saying. You've got different types of sinners. You've got sinners who are high-handed sinners and who celebrate their sin and debauchery. And These are people who would put you in jail for what you believe. Then you've got others who are in a completely different place of darkness and they're rejecting the Gospel not so much because of their immorality, but perhaps on intellectual grounds. And then you've got a whole other group of people who, for instance, they bake pies and they love their families and they volunteer at the homeless shelter, and yet they're convinced they can go it alone without any need for Christ. Are all those types of sinners the same? No. But what do they have in common? They are all still in opposition to God because they are rejecting His Son because they love the darkness. One loves their immorality. Another loves their intellect. Another loves their feeling self-sufficient on their own and likes feeling better than other people. But the common thread between all of those is that they do not come to Christ because they love darkness. And Christian... If you know how to shine the light of God's truth, you will see that love of darkness come out. Even when that darkness, so to speak, that love of darkness doesn't seem all that dark. 
Right? So take, for example, the 80-year-old woman who's been faithfully married to her husband for 60 years. She's raised children. She's worked hard. She bakes pies. She gives them to, to her neighbors. She's the, the lady on the block that everyone loves. Wonderful lady. If, if you just tell her, hey, you know, God demands faithfulness and hard work and generosity in life, she's probably not going to have a problem with that. Because in her judgment, and to be fair, she's commendable, she's done some of those things to some extent. Not with the right motives, but nonetheless. She wouldn't have a massive problem with that. But if you tell her that her morality and hard work will not save her, though they are commendable, and that she's actually a sinner right alongside the adulteress and the fornicator, and you tell her that without Christ's blood and righteousness, she is condemned along with the rest, you will likely see a very different response. Because you've shined the light the way Jesus did with the rich young ruler on her particular way of hiding in the darkness. And here's my encouragement to you, Christian. Don't live by fear of that response. And don't let fear of that response dictate whether or not you are faithful. That, w- that may and probably will invoke wrath, anger, a distancing in the le- relationship. I get that. And it's not pleasant. It's not like we go looking for that. It's not desirable. But here's the thing, Christian. If we do not expose their evil deeds, not just generic ones that they would already agree with, if we don't expose their evil deeds and their opposition to God, if we don't expose that with the light of truth, we are allowing them to go on living in their cloak of darkness undisturbed. And people that live in darkness who remain undisturbed remain in darkness. And so while it may not be pleasant, it is Christ calling upon us. And it is loving to them to speak the truth of the light of God's truth to their soul. And you're not in control of what they do with that or whether God uses that and saves them or not. You can't give them a new heart, but you can expose them to light. And we need to remember that. Christian in all of these things, that they need more than what we can give them. And I know that's not popular in today's, um, you know, there's got to be some program that we can just pump people through and out comes Christians, right? We can tell them how to be saved, but we cannot save them. That's, that's God's work. They need a supernatural work of the Spirit of God to renew their natures that removes that enmity and opposition towards God and makes them willing to submit to the truth. And we're not responsible for whether that happens or not. We are responsible for being faithful. And that is why prayer is essential in all these things. We are speaking to spiritually dead men and women and therefore we need to pray to the God who gives life. I hope we spend as much time praying for those we evangelize as we do preparing to speak with them. If anything should convince us of the necessity of praying for the lost, it is the natural enmity of men towards God and the fact that God alone can grant life. That brings us to our second and final thing. Number two, 
And this is where I want to focus on verse 21. Just as unbelievers are marked by their love of darkness, believers are marked by their rejoicing in the light. Okay? Just as unbelievers are marked by a love of darkness, true believers are marked by rejoicing in the light. And verse 21 here is very instructive. John, John especially, out of all the, all the New Testament writers, is perhaps the most practical when it comes to knowing and being assured whether someone knows God or doesn't know God. And here, in typical, simple, John-like terms, he lays out for us that those who do evil live in the darkness and avoid exposure, while those who are sincerely born of God come to the light so that it may be shown what they really are. And notice there's a contrast at the end of verse 20 with that word exposed. John says the lover of darkness doesn't want his evil deeds exposed, right? There's a contrast with that in verse 21. The believer wants his deeds to be clearly seen. In other words, in every true Christian, there is a desire to walk in the light and to have the light shine upon their lives so that we can be shown to be genuine sons of light. Not denying that the Christian still has pockets of darkness and inconsistency in his heart, but there is a progression of submission to the light, not a progression towards avoiding and ignoring and shutting out the light. And I think that's very instructive to us. As we examine our own selves to see whether we be in the faith, but also as we seek to help others gain clarity on their standing before God. There, are, there have been many, many times when I'm trying to do my best to evaluate where someone is at spiritually and it's difficult. And there's a mixture of light and darkness and I'm trying to discern, is the person standing in front of me, is this just an immature Christian who has inconsistencies but they're sincere? Or is this a non-Christian still lurking in the darkness? And sometimes it's hard to know. Now, that doesn't mean God doesn't know. It means I don't know. And it's texts like these that help us know what to look for and how to walk through that. Because I often find myself thinking or saying to myself, kind of an application of this text, the proof will be in the pudding and time will tell. It's really hard and probably not advisable to make a hard and fast judgment based on one snapshot of someone's life. I mean, you think about it. If you were to be given one snapshot of David's life right after his adultery and his following murder of Uriah in order to uh, cover it up, what would you conclude? You'd conclude this man's unregenerate. That this man, this is just another Saul. And yet, what do we see? we see David over time not comfortable in the darkness. And we see him saying things like Psalm 32, when I hid my sin, my bones rotted within me. And in time, he was brought into the light of truth and sincerity. And he's brought to genuine repentance. And he even gives to us, following that, some of the greatest prayers modeling what it is to delight to walk in the light. Psalm 139 is written by David. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's what it looks like to walk in the light. It doesn't mean perfection and it doesn't mean sinlessness. Indeed, God's people have been capable of very great falls. But what it does mean is that it means they're not at home in sin and the darkness. And God will progressively bring them to rejoice in the light of truth and sincerity so that their works will be seen to have been done in God. And this should give us both charity in our judgment, but also clarity in what to look for. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I have seen people just in, in my previous church, also here, I have seen people who had what I would call a very rough start to their Christian life. To the point where I wondered to myself, is the root of the matter really in them? And I watched those same people that I at first had doubts about, I watched them grow in maturity into where it became evident that these are sons of light. They come towards the light. Yes, they struggle, but they delight in righteousness and truth. And I have seen others where I was so confident at the start, so confident at the start of their genuineness, and yet they over time prove themselves to be still lovers of darkness because of the pattern of their life in terms of how they related to the light. That, that's the issue. That's what shows where is the root of the matter here or not. A person who shows habitual patterns of denying the light and compromising on the light and explaining away the light and defending their darkness, those people are not displaying the fruit that John describes here. And to be honest, that's what really worries me as a pastor. As a pastor, I can handle the fact that my people are going to struggle with sin. right? That's going to be expected. I struggle with sin. What's really frightening and concerning for your pastor is when someone not only struggles with sin, but when they start to evade the light. And their attitude towards the light seems compromised. And they just don't seem to be dealing honestly. And they're making justifications. And they're getting defensive over their sin. Not, that, not to say that genuine Christians aren't capable of even that for a season. Remember David, he, he didn't immediately own his sin. He first covered it up and made it a lot worse. And so we should be patient and charitable. We should hope all things, believe all things. But we should look at the pattern of one's life. And likewise, on the flip side of that also, for the one who's fallen into sin, even perhaps grievous sin, or, or the one who struggles with continuous temptation or a besetting sin, we shouldn't immediately just presume that's it. They're not a, they can't be a Christian. But rather, we, we look for, is there a love of the light here? Is there a yearning to walk in the light? Are they wanting to deal honestly with God and with their sin and to have the light search them and transform them. Let me, let me close with just two brief words. One to the unbeliever and one to the believer. Unbeliever, I want to plead with you this morning. 
leave the darkness of sin and come to the light of Christ. Okay? You have nothing to fear by leaving behind darkness and coming to the Savior. Because Christ already knows the depths of your sin. You trying to hide from God might be fooling yourself. It's not fooling God. He knows the depth of your iniquity. And He, Christ, knowing your sins in their fullness, still invites you to come to Him in part for pardon. Knowing all that He knows to receive mercy. So unbeliever, I plead with you for the sake of your never-dying soul, today is the day to give up the facade and to be honest and to stop denying the undeniable and to say about your sin what God says about your sin and to come to Christ by faith who will take your sins from you and will bury them and who will give to you the light of His righteousness and His truth and present you holy before God. Lastly, secondly, believer, walk in the light as He is in the light. Perhaps you're here and you're a Christian, a genuine Christian, and yet you've been playing hide-and-seek with God with your sin. No one else might even know about it. Might not even suspect it. Return to your gracious and merciful Savior. Do not coddle sin. Do not lurk in the darkness. Come to the light. He didn't reject you when you came to Him at first, full of nothing but sin. He will not reject you when you come to Him now. And therefore, prove the endlessness of His grace by continually walking in the light and allowing the light of Christ and His Word to search us and to know us and to show us whether there be any crooked way in me and lead us in the way everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that You would write Your Word upon our hearts. Lord, so much that could be said that we've left off. We pray that You'd make Your Word effectual to us. Father, help us to understand the depravity of the natural man, including ourselves before we knew Christ. We pray, Father, that we would give You glory in the gracious work that You've accomplished in our lives. That we would realize that we were not neutral. We were not inclined to the things of God. We were enemies of God and dead spiritually. And it was You of Your sovereign grace that made us alive. We pray, Father, send Your Spirit to do that work in more sinners in our midst. To give them the new birth from above. Lord, we can do so much and we are, we are entrusted by You to fulfill our duty, to speak the truth, to shine the light. And yet, Father, we know that we are entirely shut up to Your grace to give life to a sinner. And we pray that You would do it. We plead with You to do it. Plead, plead for our unbelieving family. We plead for those who are lost who think they are found. Those who have been taken in by a false gospel, easy believism, we pray Open the eyes of the blind. Remove deception and cause them to come to a knowledge of the true light. 
Lord, we pray that You'd help us to be faithful in our evangelism. Help us to be those who are lights. Help us to know Your Word. Help us, Lord, not to be found without an answer or a response to objections. We pray that we would utilize the sword of Your Spirit, Your Word, in a way that would pierce the unbeliever, that would show them the futility of unbelieving thought. And that You might use that, Father, to draw them to Yourself. Be our help. Build the church, we pray. Strengthen Your people. We pray, Father, as we come to the Lord's table now, that You would draw near to us. We pray that we would rejoice as we remember Christ together. We pray that You would be gracious and minister to us through this ordinance that proclaims the same Gospel that Your Word does. A table that offers grace to sinners who desperately feel their need for righteousness. We pray that You would be with us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.